You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, church family, good morning. How are you today? Okay. My name is Brady Goodwin, and I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors and elders here. And uh, as we begin this morning, I just want to make one comment about what you just observed. Um, We had the blessing of having another one of our missionary families with us in October, Zach and Kathleen, who serve in Southeast Asia. This morning, we had the privilege of having Aaron and Courtney and their little ones. And even this Tuesday, we will have another one of our families that serve in the Middle East, Caleb and Ruth, and their two children back in Dallas as they prepare to welcome uh, a new baby. And what I want you to see from those three families in particular is that Northway is a church that cares a great deal about sending for the sake of the gospel. Um, One of our privileges as believers in Christ, and in fact, one of our callings, Jesus will say this at the end of the book of Matthew, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And one of the things we are most committed to in this body is training up men and women who will grow in their love for Jesus, but also sending men and women who will commit their lives for the sake of gospel proclamation across the world. And so if there's any part of you that goes, huh, that sounds interesting, come and talk to one of us so that you can learn a little bit more about what it looks like to be trained and to be sent here at Northway. I've known Courtney I don't even know how long, maybe 10 years. And Aaron, ever since they got married, um, these are long relationships of folks who have been a part of this church who have committed their lives for the sake of Jesus to go where he is not yet known. And so we have that privilege. Anyways, just want to encourage you with that. We're going to have another family home this week that we'll get to celebrate getting to see them as well. This morning, we are continuing the series that Shay began last week, Worthy of Our Songs, and we're going to look at the hymn that we just sang before Amanda came up to pray over the Dakers, which is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And if you're familiar with this hymn, you will know that it is about waiting, which is pretty fitting for us because I would think that it is a safe assumption this morning to say that we are all waiting for something. And so, of course, at Christmas time, waiting is just part of the season. When I was a kid, the entire month of December, I was like one big rubber band ball of anxious anticipation, examining every angle of the presence under the tree to d- try to discern what lies within those, that wrapping, absolutely. Being able to sleep at night on Christmas Eve, absolutely not. As we get older, however, and as you have matured in your life, I would expect as well things have changed. Hopefully, you have learned more of what Christmas is all about. You have become less Sally or Lucy and a little bit more Linus and Charlie Brown. You are more experienced, you are wiser, and more aware of all that accompanies this time of year. But what is probably true is that even though much has changed the waiting remains. Some of us, like our kids, or us as kids, are waiting for this season to come. 
We love everything about Christmas. We love the lights. We love the movies. We love listening to Mariah Carey's Christmas album or Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God or maybe even if you're old school, George Strait's Merry Christmas Straight to You. Some of you are just waiting for this season to be over, however. You remember the loss that has come in years past or you think about the pain you are currently enduring. This became a real experience for my wife and I several years in our early marriage as we struggled through a season of miscarriage and infertility. And I know that many of you have walked through the same pain. We are waiting, but our hopes remain unfulfilled. Some of us, however, are waiting for something else. And the absence of that something or our anticipation of it colors our thoughts and expectations in a particular way. We're awaiting news about a job or about the possibility of a relationship or about other hopes or fears or longings. And some of us in this season are simply waiting for the hope that, cha- that things could be different. But whatever our situation, the waiting remains. And so as we mentioned just a moment ago, this hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, is about waiting. And it's about waiting because the Bible is full of stories of waiting. One such story that connects so well to the themes of what we sang a moment ago is the story of a man called Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. And I'll invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2 as we prepare for our time together this morning. But as you're turning to Luke 2, what we are going to see is that like so many of us, Simeon was waiting. And what I want to do during our time together is to look at what Simeon was waiting for in Luke 2, 22 through 35, and then to see how this connects to the truths of come thou long expected Jesus. And so would you turn with me to Luke 2, starting in verse 22. Before we jump into the text, a little bit of background to this passage The beginning of Luke's gospel contains three significant events that pertain to the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. First, we see the angel Gabriel appearing to a priest named Zechariah, and he declares to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth, despite her old age, Elizabeth will conceive a child who will prepare the way for the Lord's Messiah this child whom we will know as John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he would call the people to repentance in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Second, we then see Gabriel appear to a young girl named Mary, who was a relative of Elizabeth, to tell her that despite being a young unmarried virgin, she will also conceive bearing a child by the Holy Spirit who will be called Son of the Most High. Gabriel would say that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. This son would be known as the Anointed One, the Messiah, the true King of Israel, who would usher in the kingdom of God. And then third, we see how Mary's child, Jesus, is born. And at his birth, a host of heaven proclaims before a group of lowly shepherds, as we'll look at next week 
in the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. And now in Luke 2, verse 22, we see Luke tell us about how Mary and her husband Joseph present this child, Jesus, according to the specifications of the law. Look with me at verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. There are two things that are happening here in Luke 2, 22 through 24. First, we see a sacrifice offered on behalf of Mary, which according to Leviticus 12 was required when a new mom gave birth to a son that she was to present herself for ritual cleansing after 41 days. And so we know then that Jesus is 41 days old in this story. And we see Mary and Joseph fulfilling this requirement with the requisite sacrifice for a young couple with very little material means, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Second, Jesus, as the firstborn, was to be presented to the Lord following the pattern of Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, which says this, "'Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine.'" Mary and Joseph then bring him to the temple primarily for this purpose, to be dedicated to God's service. From here, the text shifts to introduce Simeon. Look with me at Luke 2, verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We don't learn much backstory about Simeon except what is mentioned here. Yet the descriptor, righteous and devout, which by the way was also used to describe Zechariah and Elizabeth, this descriptor coupled with the statement of what Simeon was waiting for, namely the consolation of Israel, tells us something significant. In the same way that John was an Old Testament prophet, Simeon was an Old Testament saint. He was a man who believed in the God of Israel, who trusted in his word, a man who had a right perspective regarding the promises of God and one on whom the Holy Spirit rested. Simeon knew the condition of God's people and he knew how in their waiting for a Messiah, they groped around in great darkness looking for the light of God, as Isaiah will state in Isaiah 9-2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. As such, Simeon was looking for the culmination of what Isaiah promises later in Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This word comfort is the same root as the word consolation. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins." A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. 
The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Simeon's hope and the consolation of Israel is significant because, as you may have learned, those of you who were a part of our story of Scripture class this fall, the expectations for the Messiah among the people of Israel in the first century didn't always match the witness of Scripture. Instead of a Savior who would forgive sin and usher in God's kingdom, many in Israel were instead looking for a military warrior who would defeat their enemies and usher in yet another iteration of man's kingdom. But such a vision is contrary to that of Scripture. This anointed one was coming to bring salvation to all people, and he would do so by offering his very life, not through military conquest. But because Simeon's hope was in this Messiah, we see a remarkable hinge between Old Testament expectation and New Testament fulfillment as we look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Simeon would see the anointed one face to face. His life, which in a very real way represented the outstanding hopes of the prophetic age of the Old Testament, his life would not end until this promise was fulfilled. And so notice now the first phrase of verse 27. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. The Greek would be translated most directly, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. In other words, the Holy Spirit directs him to go to the temple. The temple, the very place throughout the Old Testament where God's presence dwelled, where people came to meet with God. Now Simeon, one of the last of the Old Testament saints, will find in that very temple that God has come to meet with us. And so as the text continues, we see this. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required... Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Simeon sees the child. He takes him up and he offers up a remarkable prayer beginning in verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Notice how Simeon addresses God in prayer. He uses the Greek term despota, sovereign Lord. This is not the more common term, kurios, but a more specific name that stresses God's purposeful ordering in history. You may remember a few months back in our prayer series where Shea preached from Acts 4, where the same term is used. And this is what the text says there. Acts 4, verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And so for Simeon to use the same phrase here, And for Luke to bring out this emphasis, as he does also in the book of Acts, highlights a massive truth. God is sovereign. He is in control. He directs everything that is and will come to pass according to his good purposes. He causes nations to rise and fall. He ordains the events of your life and of my life both for the maximum expression of his glory, but also our deepest joy and satisfaction. And now in the temple, he displays the fulfillment of the greatest promise he ever made to save his people from their sin. Everything that follows in Simeon's prayer illustrates this hope. His eyes, because they have seen Jesus, have seen God's salvation. This salvation is not merely for the nation of Israel, but for all people, a light for those who once walked in darkness and the glory of, the fulfillment of, the greatest satisfaction of the nation of Israel. Simeon's prayer is the central theme of this passage, and it leaves quite an impression on Mary and Joseph, who, as we will read in verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. But Simeon is not finished with his blessing. As the passage concludes in verse 34, Simeon moves from praising God to speaking directly to Mary. It says this, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Just before, Mary marveled at Simeon's words, but I wonder what she felt here. Simeon is telling her that, yes, Jesus is God's salvation, the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel, but he is also telling her Jesus is going to reveal the true allegiances of a person's heart. Some will rise as they cling to him by faith. Others will fall as they reject him through unbelief. All will be uncovered for where their true hope is. And you, Mary, will experience the pangs of loss as you see your son give his life as a ransom for many. And so amid all the joy of Christmas... This, this statement of Simeon's is, of course, one logical implication of what Jesus' advent means. For a Savior to come, to truly bring light and life into the world, to forgive sins, this coming demands a response. Not all will call upon him by faith, for this would require acknowledging our need. Not all will exalt him as supreme, For this would require recognizing our lesser hopes. But this is the hope for which Simeon was waiting. He knew that the coming of Jesus Christ and his salvation would mean the forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation that we all need with God, but it would also mean the revealing of one's heart, either of readiness to believe 
or hard-heartedness leading to rejection in favor of lesser longings. Simeon's story concludes rather abruptly at this point, and we don't see him again. But after this, in the narrative, it will say immediately at at that moment, we read about an elderly prophetess named Anna who offered a similar blessing following Simeon's encounter. But what I want us to see is that the inclusion of Simeon and Anna in the biblical narrative is significant for one primary reason. We see in them a picture of waiting faithfully for what God has promised. Neither Simeon nor Anna wavered in this hope, but instead fixed their eyes on God's character and with it his integrity as a promise keeper. And so as we consider Simeon's story this morning, let me ask you a question. If everyone is waiting this time of year, what are you waiting for? If I'm honest, what has happened this week as I have studied this passage is the Lord has confronted me with the profoundly insufficient nature of my hopes, past and present. This isn't the first time this has happened, nor will it be the last. God has been kind to show these things to me, but it has been painful. And such is true of many of us, whether it be financial pressures, relational pain, or merely our aspiration for good things. We can find that our hopes, the things we are waiting for, that they eclipse the wonder of salvation that has come through Jesus Christ. But here's what I want to encourage you with. This stripping away, this revealing, this exposure, it's necessary. You and I will never see Jesus the way that Simeon did if we do not have our hopes revealed for what they truly are. Even hope for a good thing, if it be more important to us than Jesus, is something that God must prune from our hearts. Otherwise, Christmas and the Jesus whom this situation, this season glorifies, it will continue to be a source of frustrated hopes and unfulfilled longings. But it is here, at the place of waiting and of recognizing our lesser hopes, that the story of Simeon, as well as the hymn that we have sung, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, it is here that these truths have the power to renew hope for our weary hearts. So let's spend some time thinking now about this hymn. Charles Wesley wrote, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, back in 1744. He was around 40 years old when it was written. And he wrote it being inspired after meditating on a verse of Scripture, Haggai 2, verse 7, which says this, I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. We saw last week when looking at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but Haggai 2 verse 7 is another passage of Scripture that is about waiting, specifically waiting for the hope of Israel and the fulfillment of all that God promised by the prophets regarding the restoration of his people and the glory of God. 
The author Ace Collins, in his book, More Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas, explains Wesley's interpretation of Haggai 2.7 as he completed the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. He says this, after reading these words, Wesley began to consider what Jesus' birth meant to the world's people. The minister lived in a time when many were suffering in hunger and poverty. There were orphans all around him. The distinction between the classes was distinct and large. He also knew a world in which slavery was allowed. It seemed that in the more than 1,700 years since the Lord had come, humanity had improved little, if at all. Wesley lived in a time in England where the needs of humanity far outweighed the material provision to which we are so accustomed today in our culture. Such needs reflected a stark contrast between privilege and want, between status and desperation. As with Mary and Joseph, whose offering at the temple reflected the absence of their means, so too was the state of many in Britain in the 18th century. But Wesley, as Collins will continue to note, viewed such difficulty as an occasion to turn to the hope of Christ. He continues, as Wesley considered the plight of so many in the world and then thought of Jesus' birth, a hopeful thought consumed him. With great anticipation, he found himself looking forward to the second coming of Christ, desiring to see that with as much zeal as the writer of Haggai had looked forward to the Lord's birth. And like the man who wrote down those words in the Old Testament, Wesley realized he would have to be patient. God's timing would take precedent over man's desires. Did you notice that? Wesley saw the condition of the world, the suffering of humanity, the hopes and fears of people. But he understood the ubiquity and the necessity of waiting for the Lord. And like Simeon before, and like so many of us since, Wesley was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He saw the suffering of the world, but also the hope of the coming of Jesus. And so in response, he penned these well-known words. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins, our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Pulling from a number of Old Testament prophecies and biblical themes, Wesley wove together a brief but remarkable hymn testifying to the power of Jesus to fulfill our heart's truest longings in light of his salvation. It is a hymn that witnesses to the waiting that is required for each of us, not only in this season, but throughout our life, as you and I learn to submit our heart's desires to the Lord, and as He impresses upon us the sufficiency and the supremacy of His Son 
It beautifully reflects the words of Scripture, whether it's Wesley's original interpretation in Haggai 2.7, but even more directly, the story of Simeon, as we have seen in Luke 2, 22 through 35. Come thou long-expected Jesus is worthy of our songs for its ability to sharpen our focus beyond peripheral hopes to the true satisfaction that Jesus can bring today and in the age to come. It is a hymn that can help us move from waiting on lesser things to waiting for our true hope in Christ. And so as we prepare to sing this hymn once more, I'd like us to consider a few questions based upon Wesley's words that I hope will center our thinking on the Lord and what it means to wait for him. The first line of the tune says, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set our people free. And I want to ask you again, what are you waiting for? Maybe it's the feeling of hope lacking, where you may feel like you are struggling or stuck. And in response, what words of encouragement might the Lord be saying to you this morning as you wait on him and have your desires refined by his work in your life? The next line in the hymn says, from our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. What is hindering your focus on Christ this season? What worries, what anxieties, what strongholds are present that may be keeping you from true rest in him? And where might the Lord be inviting you to lay down in a posture of humble repentance these things? so that you may commune with him more deeply. The hymn will continue to describe Israel's strength and consolation, the hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. And so I want to ask you, how can you join in with Simeon in looking to the consolation of Israel? What would it mean for you in this season to see Jesus as the joy of every longing heart? And as such, how might the Lord be using you to bring the hope of Jesus to the hearts of your unbelieving friends and neighbors? Who is God calling you to pray for in this season so that this hope could be known in their life? The second stanza of the hymn, as we read, says, born thy people to deliver, born a child, yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. How does the good news about Jesus transform your expectations for this season? About what you want to happen? About what you fear happening? Whether for yourself or for your family? About what happens when the holidays are over? The hymn concludes with these two lines. By thine own eternal spirit rule in all our hearts alone. And it helps us to think, how does our perspective change when we consider the active work of God's Spirit in our lives? How is God asking you to submit your heart to the Holy Spirit's leading, to trust Him more, to follow His voice? And then finally, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Jesus' second advent, His return, will bring about the renewal and restoration of all things. How does this knowledge that Jesus' kingdom has begun today, as we would say the already but not yet, 
How does that sharpen our desire for its full consummation and his return? To put it another way, how are you in this season looking to the hope of heaven and eternity? Where is the Lord calling you to look to this hope, to look beyond earthly treasures and desires? Simeon awaited the consolation of Israel, and he rejoiced to see Jesus' face. Wesley penned this hymn to sharpen our focus on this hope amid so many competing desires and fears and in response to the suffering of this world. And today, the Lord is inviting us to pour out our hearts in a spirit of thanksgiving and dependence as we cry out together, come thou long-expected Jesus. And so as we pray and as we prepare to sing this hymn once more, let's ask that the Lord would strengthen our hearts to these ends. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would today, by your Holy Spirit, that you would make our hearts like Simeon's heart. That you would help us not only to wait with patience, but to wait for the right things. Lord, would you help us to look to Jesus as our deepest hope and that we would lay aside everything else with open hands, full of gratitude, that amid our circumstances and situation, the greatest gift we could ever hope for has been given to us in him. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.